Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for your spirit who you've given so freely, so abundantly, who indwells us personally and corporately. And we pray, we ask in these few moments that as we sit with the scriptures, that your spirit will reveal Jesus to us. Convict us of sin, encourage, lift up, empower for the glory of your kingdom. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. It's good to be back in Tulsa. And uh, heard you had a wonderful weekend last weekend. This Sunday we begin a new series that we're going to be going through this summer called The Gospel According To. And this is going to be a survey, a series of sermons that are going to take us through the minor prophets. The minor prophets are known as the Book of Twelve historically. Uh, they're minor prophets not because they're not that important. That's not why they call them minor prophets. They're called minor prophets because their books tend to be significantly shorter than books like Isaiah with 66 chapters and Jeremiah with 50 plus chapters and all those books that Christians just tear up every morning in quiet time. Um, you know, you can read Obadiah while you wait online for something uh, pretty conveniently. So you might want to check out the Minor Prophets and start talking about your intense Bible reading habits. They're, uh, traditionally, in antiquity, these books, these collections of prophetic writings would have been kept on a single scroll. And so that's why they refer to it as the Book of Twelve. They were probably written over a period of somewhere around 400 years. So there's quite a span of time. Uh, in which they're working. And uh, the last one might be where we're starting today. And uh, there's no way to know for sure, but there's some scholarly speculation that the last uh, of the minor prophets written was Jonah, even though Malachi is last. And uh, based on our gospel reading this morning, I don't know that there's a better minor prophet to start with, right? This idea of being in a ship that's being tossed about by a storm. And so we're going to jump into Jonah. And uh, my hope here is that over the course of these weeks that we spend time with these minor prophets, at the very least on a surface level or on an initial front, we will have our appetite to be in the scriptures wedded. We will have this desire to actually study and sit with and be immersed in the world of scripture because I think that's one of the ways the spirit renews our mind. And so I'd love for us to sit through a, a Sunday and go home and read the book of Jonah this afternoon. It won't destroy your afternoon and you'll probably nap wonderfully afterwards, but it's worth, I think there's a tremendous value there. But more than that, my hope is that this series, uh, uh, which is titled after a series of tweets that Dr. Green did called The Gospel According to, and he, of course, in his spare time when he's not thinking about it, the one hand is just tweeting, and I don't know what the rest of his person is doing. It's like, The Gospel According to, you know, Haggai, and he just writes amazing things not thinking about it. And we're all like, oh my goodness. Uh, but he sort of inspired this 
for us. And I love this idea that the gospel according to, let's say, Jonah, you may not think of Jonah as a gospel book, but what I would love to see happen for all of us is that even if on some level this is already true for you, that on an even deeper level, that Jesus and his gospel, let me say that again, Jesus and his gospel could become the lens through which we read our Bibles, all of our Bibles. You remember on the road to Emmaus when Jesus came alongside the two disciples who were walking away from the place of resurrection and power? They're walking away from Jerusalem, and he comes and he walks alongside them. And imagine this. He says, starting with the law and the prophets, he began to explain to them all things concerning himself. I'm wondering, well, what's the point of all this? Is anybody married or part of a nuclear family? Would you please raise your hand? Okay, so there's husbands and wives sitting together. Wives raise their hands. Husbands are like, no, I'm not part of a marriage or a family. If you're part of a family, if you deal with humans during the course of a week, does anybody have problems, arguments, discussions, disagreements you deal with over the course of a week? Anybody? Is there a person in your life you say, you know what, I really can't read them? Okay. My hope and my prayer is that as we learn to read Scripture through the lens of Jesus, we'll learn to read our lives through the lens of Jesus. We'll learn to read the people around us through the lens of Jesus. That his gospel will become such a centering point, such an axis for our existence, that it won't simply be we only see Jesus in Jesus' stories, but we see Jesus in every story. Because in the end, there's only one story, and it's his. That's what we're shooting for. Mark 4, we have a bunch of guys on a boat, one of whom is sleeping. Jonah 1, if you have your Bible, let's crack it open and look at Jonah 1. If you have your app, crack your thumbs, let's go. It says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go at once. Don't you like that instruction? Do it now to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, a couple of thoughts about Jonah and this story before we go any further. And that is, first of all, I think Jonah stands out as a unique book among the prophets because it really doesn't contain prophecy. It's biography. It's a story of a prophet rather than the words of a prophet. In a sermon that I preached here at Sanctuary, we noted that the entire content of Jonah's prophetic message can be wrapped up in this verse. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his sermon. Let's go have lunch. It. Finished. Done. The bulk of this book is about Jonah's life. Another thing I'd like to say is that Jonah is an incredibly complex and comedic book. 
so it's complex. Imagine this. At this time frame, does Nineveh have the law? No. Does Nineveh have the name Yahweh? No. So what right does God have to judge Nineveh for not keeping laws that they don't have and being obedient to a God they don't know? Pretty good question, I thought. How about this one? He's getting on a boat to go to a city that's away from the presence of the Lord. Does that present a conflict for anybody besides me? Like, you can, there's a place like that that I can go to where he won't bother me? Really? It's a little bit comedic when you think about it. Of course, this, I love the idea that this could be the last Old Testament book written because it ends on a question. It has a hanging diphthong of all hanging diphthongs. Because what does he say? God asks the question, what about all the animals? That's how the Old Testament ends. Okay. The last punctuation mark in the Old Testament is a question mark, if Jonah's the last book. Isn't that fitting? And of course, we run into another complexity with this book because we are distracted, I think, from its primary message by debates over whether or not this is a historic detail or it's a myth. Did he really get swallowed by a giant fish, dwell in the belly of a fish for three days, not get affected by the acid and digestive stuff going on in there, and then just get spit out on the shore? Really? What sea was this? Is it the Mediterranean? There's no whales there. There's not a whale big enough. It says fish. Is it a fish? Is it a whale? Is it a mammal? <sighs> Philip Carey has written a wonderful commentary on Jonah. I want you to listen to this quote. I think this will help us. The problem of the book of Jonah is not how we are to know God but how God is to deal with us and our more or less persistent efforts to not know him. I didn't say it. But I think we can all relate. So as I sat with the book of Jonah, I had four thoughts. The first thought, activity does not equal faithfulness. The fact is, Jonah did not tell God no. Jonah said yes on his own terms. If Jonah had said no to God, he would have never left his house and his town. But Jonah said, oh, you want me to do something? Fine, I'll do something. I'll just do what I want to do. And a hush falls over the room. Think about it. I was always taught, just plainly and flatly, Moses is this disobedient bum. No, 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 no. Moses is, I'm Moses, I'm going to do this the whole sermon. I promise you, folks. Jonah, 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 Jonah. I've always thought Jonah's this disobedient guy who just won't listen. No, Jonah's like, yeah, I'm in, I'll go. I just don't want to do that. Huh. See, I think there's something uh, in me and maybe in you that thinks if, if I'm active, that that's just by virtue of the activity is good. And God has never called us to be active. He's called us to be faithful. 
Moreover, it's required of stewards, it says in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that they be found faithful, not busy. See, busyness is not a virtue in the kingdom of God. Faithfulness is the virtue of the kingdom of God. What's interesting here is that the call of God to Jonah exposes something about Jonah. Jonah doesn't like Nineveh. And so maybe as, a, as a, an important subpoint here is we have to remember that the call of God is always bigger than the act itself. If God calls you to Tulsa, Oklahoma to be the pastor at Sanctuary, it's more than just Sanctuary at stake, Brother Mark. Hello? Maybe God wants to do something in Mark and his terrible bias against Oklahomans. That was a joke, by the way. You all better laugh right away because I don't have a bias that I know of against Oklahomans. Eugene Peterson has a book that I would highly recommend to everybody in the room. And the title of the book alone should sell you. It's called Under the Unpredictable Plant. And it's about Jonah. And it's absolutely incredible. I think you'll all be blessed by it. I want you to listen to this idea that he expands on about Jonah's conditional obedience. Going to Nineveh to preach was not a coveted assignment for a Hebrew prophet with good references. But Tarshish was something else. Tarshish was exotic. Tarshish was adventure. This exotic escapism is familiar enough. Men and women are called by God to task and provided a vocation. We respond to the divine initiative, but we humbly request to choose the destination. I'm going to read that again. We, we are provided, a, we respond to the divine initiative, but we humbly request to choose the destination. We are going to be what God asks, but not in Nineveh, for heaven's sake. Let's try Tarshish. In Tarshish, we can be good Christians without having to deal with God. That's busyness, not faithfulness. The second thought I had was that stillness is not or does not equal peace. Stillness does not equal peace. Let's look down at verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1. He says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea, the ship was threatened to break up. It's kind of like what we had last night here in Tulsa. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. Boy, that sounds familiar, yet very different to what we heard this morning. But he was in the stern, Mark 4, 38, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Two boats, two storms, two crews, two sleepyheads. Not the same thing. 
One was still, the other was at peace. One was so exhausted and dead to the world. Think about that phrase for a minute. One had his senses so numbed that he was able to sleep in the midst of chaos. The other had such a clear sense of God's presence and purpose that even the most deadly storm couldn't rattle him. We should never think that just because we have stillness, we have peace. I'm that guy who really gets on his wife's nerves, not just because I snore like a lumberjack, but because I can start doing it in less than five minutes. I wish I had a dollar because I could take you all out to lunch, like to Charleston's for lunch. I've been married 23 years this September. The amount of times my wife has punched, slapped, kicked, kneed, and given me the business because we have lain down like Jonah in the bed, and within two minutes and 42 seconds, I can do it. I can do it. I can sleep through all kinds of stuff. And it's not because I'm peaceful, it's because I have sleep apnea or something like that's going on. But what, is, what the issue is, just because I'm sleeping, just because I'm still, just because I'm not rattled, doesn't mean I have peace. It just might mean I don't have sensitivity. It might mean I don't have awareness. It might mean that I'm so caught up in me and my situation and my needs that it hasn't yet affected me. Jesus is not sleeping because he's oblivious. Jesus is not sleeping because he's got sleep apnea and he's exhausted. Jesus is not sleeping due to indifference or dullness of heart. Jesus is sleeping because he knows in his knower that he's going to the other side. The third thought that I had here is that a word of judgment does not equal a word of condemnation. In the third chapter of Jonah, if you want to turn over there, Jonah finally, after famously being spit out of the whale, ends up in Nineveh. And it says here uh, in verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, and this was the passionate sermon, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Again, I know I might be repeating myself, but I have to say I am so jealous of his anointing because that sentence brings immediate results. The people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, starts repenting. What? Wow. Now here's the thing. We know from what we read in the first chapter that God has sent Listen, he has sent his prophet to this city because God is not happy with Nineveh. Their wickedness, it's not just like they're not nice. It's not like they don't recycle. They are wicked, okay? And he's saying, I'm going to send my prophet there to announce my judgment. But when we hear judgment, we think so negative, don't we? Friends, God's judgment is not condemnation. Condemnation is a word of finality 
in response to our sin and our failure. Judgment is a word of opportunity to our sin and our failure. And the thing we have to remember is whose word of judgment it is. It's one thing if I cast judgment on you. It's another thing if God casts judgment on you. My judgment will be biased. My judgment will be incomplete. My judgment might be snarky. God's judgment is always love. God's judgment is always meant to lead us to repentance. God's judgment is always issued in hope and in optimism and the outgiving love of who God is. He is fullness. He is abounding in steadfast love, as Jonah would come to lament a little bit later. Conviction reveals God's hope. Conviction reveals God's hope that we will respond to his grace. It reveals not only his desire, but God is convinced it's possible that we can live in his holiness. Ephraim the Syrian says this, Give thanks to the one who sent his anger to Nineveh, that his anger might be a merchant of mercy. Friends, God is not angry like we're angry. God's anger is never because he's threatened or he's lost something. God's anger is always defined by his mercy. And the fourth thought I had was that home, quote unquote, does not equal a particular space. I'd reference you back to this idea of Jonah fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. This year, this past 12-month cycle, has been an interesting one for me, for Danielle, the girls, even for my son. Because at 45 years of age, um, I left New York with the wife and two girls in tow, and my son shipped off to the Army. And the word home became an interesting word. And it's unusual for a person to live in the same town for 45 years nowadays. Even more unusual to go to the same church for that whole time. And there's a sense in which I thought to myself, I didn't realize how much people define home for us. And the more I thought about that, the more problems I had with that. What's home for you? What's safe for you? What's comfortable for you? Where's the place, where's the location where you can take off your shoes, put on your slippers, not do your hair? I'm talking to the men now. And if you wait a while to brush your teeth, it's not a problem. Where is that space for you? Not just physically, but existentially. Where is that space for you as a person? 
Now, we all relate to home first and foremost, I think, in this physical sense of a particular address. And then we add to it this layer, of course, uh, Luther Vandross famously singing, a house is not a home. Come on, Brother Luther. <laughs> you ought to look that song up. Anyway, um, what's the point? We realize very quickly that it's not just sheetrock and two-by-fours, but it's the people who inhabit those spaces that make home for us. But for the Christian, for the follower of the true God, I'd submit to you that home does not equal that space. And on some meaningful level, I don't know that it should be the people either. And I feel like that's what God has been teaching me for the last year. Home is God. Home is his presence. Home is living in his will and being faithful to his purposes. And the beautiful thing about that is it frees up all the people around you, the people I'm looking at right now, from the unnatural pressures to be something for me. It frees up all the people back in New York to be some sort of unhealthy codependence for me. If, in fact, in him I move and have my being. Isn't it interesting? Paul says that in the same context in which he says God has determined the boundaries and the times of the nations of the earth. If truly we live and move and have our being in God, he is our home. And our journey in this life, therefore, is always a journey home because there's nowhere we can go from his presence. My prayer is that as we find our home in Christ, we can be like Peter, who in John chapter 6 says, to whom shall we go? Remember that after Jesus gave that Eucharistic discourse, if you will, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and several of the disciples walked away. Jesus says, are you also going to walk away? And he says, to whom would we go? Jesus was home for Peter. When we find our sense of home in Christ and fulfilling his purposes, I think it's only then that we realize we can walk in faithfulness. We can go to Nineveh. We can do the hard things. We can be faithful. We can be faithful to places like Nineveh because Jesus was faithful. Jesus was faithful because he's already been cast into the deep for us. Jonah was cast in the deep to save the mariners. Jesus was cast into the deep to save us. But the key difference is Jonah did it by lots, and Jesus did it by love. And hence, the gospel according to Jonah is this. The word of judgment is a word of mercy, taking the long way home. Let's pray. Is there somebody here this morning who is worn out and tired because you've been very busy and you're starting to question whether or not you should be as busy as you are? Would you just lift up your hand if there's somebody like that? I just felt like there was a couple of people. 
Father, I, I thank you for the people who just lifted up their hands this morning. And I pray that this word of grace would come into their lives. That their calling is not to be busy, but to be faithful. And I pray that you'd give them clarity. You'd give them calmness in their spirit. And you'd give them clarity in their mind. To perceive not what has to be done, but what you're calling them to do. I pray for all of us in this room that that would be true. I pray we would be people of faithfulness. I pray that we'd be people of peace. I pray that we would be people who don't shun your conviction. And more than anything, that we find our home in you. We love you, Lord. We bless you today. Amen.